Well, good morning, church. I am excited to share the word with you here this morning. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and pull them out. Uh, but good luck, because I'm going to be moving pretty quickly through here. You know, I, I cut out a third of my message in the first service. And I was so proud of myself. The clock up there said 929, and I, I got everybody out on time. Here, the clock stopped at 929. <laughs> Supposedly, I was still 10 minutes over service, so... But uh, I have this question as you pull out your Bibles here this morning. I have this question for you. For those of you that don't know me, by the way, I'm Pastor Chris. I'm the Connections Pastor here, as well as the Youth Pastor as well. And that's why I'm sporting our gear here this morning, the current youth ministry. Yeah, we are so proud of our students. By the way, can you give a hand to PJ, sixth grader who played the drums this morning? He's hiding over there behind Jeremiah. <laughs> So uh, I, I want to ask this question, though, as we get started here today. How would people describe you? How would people describe you? Maybe look at your spouse next to you, your friend. Is it like, how, how would you describe me? What's, what's the first thing that comes to mind when somebody describes you? Now, maybe some of you are thinking about the negative side of this, okay? Maybe what's a positive thing that somebody would say about you? We live in a culture where, you know, it's, we've been talking a lot about personality traits, right? We've got a lot of different personality tests, and in the church, we talk about spiritual gifts tests, and a lot of those things which are absolutely important, and let me just tell you, each of you are extremely unique. You, you are a unique fingerprint of God on your life, and I do have to say, even if you're a twin, you're still unique. <laughs> you know, God didn't make any one of us exactly the same and uh, we've highlighted that a lot in the church. And I don't know if you've heard of like the shapes test. I think Rick Warren came up with that. It's like spiritual gifts, heart, abilities, personality experience, all these things that go into your life. There's the five love languages. I've actually given that book away to some of our um, people that are getting married. And it's really helpful to like know what's going on. I see some of you smiling. You've read the book or else it's something's up with your marriage. <laughs> Uh, Myers-Briggs, um, yeah, the Myers-Briggs, <laughs> wow, Michaela, thank you, uh, Myers-Briggs test, there's the DISC test, the Enneagram test, whatever you think about all of these things, um, really what our culture, and even in the church here, what we've tried to do is try to pinpoint exactly who you are and the uniqueness of how you respond to things. But I want to share something that I found interesting. I just finished reading a book called Lead Like It Matters by Craig Rochelle. He's the lead pastor of Life Church. They have about 43 campuses over, all over America, a huge church. And uh, he was finding some interesting things, and this isn't in the book. He had shared this in a podcast where he looked across their different churches and what made some churches successful and do very well and some churches not. Because really what they are is a carbon copy of their initial building and like literally the same exact worship style, same exact type of preaching. They, they, everything is like, you know, photocopied across the thing. But some churches would do really well and some they had to close. Uh, he was talking about one in Phoenix that they had to close down. And what was interesting, though, is he looked at the leaders that were involved in these churches and he found this, that greatness is found in the extremes, Greatness is found in the extremes. They, he recognized that many of these leaders, and they even looked did a study across many CEOs and business leaders, and they found that there were two extremes that coexisted at the exact same time. For example, these leaders were extremely direct. 
but they were extremely kind. These leaders sometimes were very frugal, but then in other ways, they were extremely generous. And, and he's just looking at these different things and the, and the way that it created a culture in the church. And that's why I've labeled this called paradox of faith. A paradox, I want to define that for you, is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. It's a situation, person, or thing that combines contradictory features or qualities. And as I thought about that word, I thought about Jesus. 100% man, 100% God. It's like, oh, in this circumstance, he was 75% God, you know, 25%. No, he was 100% and 100%. Well, when he was on the cross, he was man, but then it was like, no, he was 100% and 100%. Now, I don't know about you. I got young children. Uh, Gray's turning seven tomorrow. It's his birthday. And then Eden is nine. And they asked me some deep theological questions. Ones that I just, I, I mean, the Trinity. I, I can come up with these different ways of describing it, but our minds just can't wrap around the full concept of these things. Jesus is the beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega. We sang about it. He's the lion and the lamb. Well, in this circuit, he was lion there. No, he was lamb there. No, he's lion and the lamb. Foolish and wise. First shall be last. Last will be first. Weak made strong. Lose your life to gain it. Does that make sense? Urgent and patient. God is urgent and patient at the same time. Scripture says that for him, a day is like a thousand years, but a thousand years is like a day. It's like he can move in a moment, and then he takes centuries to take care of things, right? It's just so weird how he can be both of these at the same time. To suffer and be joyful, right? We hate that verse in James 1, 2 that says, consider it joy, brothers and sisters, when we face trials of different kinds. Joy, trials. Jesus endured the cross because of the joy set before him. And then this one, this will split churches right down the middle. The sovereignty of God and free will. And people have argued until they are blue in the face over these two issues, and they have stood their ground until Jesus returns. That it's the sovereignty of God and other people. No, it's free will. And I'm here to tell you the scripture says both. How does that work? mind blown. I don't know. I don't fully understand it. I don't. But what we've unintentionally done sometimes in the church is we've used these personality things and all these different things, but we've used them as excuses for our character. We've gone through a transition as a culture of character to a culture of personality, prioritizing charisma and likability. We think of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. You go through all of that fruit, and, and we, uh, I was telling Billy, it was Billy's birthday yesterday. Can you guys give a hand for Billy here in the front? <laughs> Billy is my friend, and he was at Shady Maple yesterday for free food. Whoo! But we treat the fruit of the Spirit like Shady Maple, like a smorgasbord. I'm not really that patient, but I'm all about this. You know, I'm all about love, but I'm not that patient. I'm sorry, you don't get to choose. It's, it's all part, like those are the things that you don't get to choose that. I'm sorry. But like all of us are called to have that. If you're growing in the spirit, that's what it looks like. We have something in our culture, expressive and radical individualism. 
And you see it on the right and the left of the political spectrum. It's like, you don't tell me what to do. I do my own thing, right? That, that's what we've come to. It's like, I'm so unique, and I do whatever I want to do. But that's leached its way into the church when we're figuring out our personalities and all these other things. Like, oh, you, have, you are different, but there are some things you don't get to choose. Sovereignty and free will, they coexist. There's a a famous theologian named G.K. Chesterton. People called him the Prince of Paradox. And I'm going to show you why. He made this statement. He's talking about uh, sexual virginity issues and stuff like that in the church. But the, the picture that he describes can fit all of these things I just said. It is the church that has kept them side by side like two strong colors, red and white, like red and white upon the shield of St. George. St. George's shield, if you've ever seen that, has a red cross and it's white in the background. It has always had a healthy hatred of pink. Sorry for the pink lovers out there. It hates that combination of two colors, which is the feeble expedient of the philosophers. It hates that evolution of black into white, which is a tantamount dirty gray. He says, all that I'm urging here can be expressed by saying that Christianity sought in most of these cases to keep two colors coexistent, but pure. It's not a mixture like rosette or purple. It is rather like shot silk, for a shot silk is always at right angles and is in the pattern of the cross. Now, I want to show you a picture of how they create shot silk. This is called the warp and the weft. It's amazing what you learn as a preacher. (laughs) The warp and the weft, and and as you can see, the warp would be one color and the weft would be another color, and they come up across each other at a perfect cross. But here's the thing about that is that keeps both colors coexistent and yet pure. Now, it is so awkward to walk into places and explain why you need a yard of fabric. And they say, are you making a dress? No, I'm not. This is what shot silk looks like, right? So when, I, when you look at this, it's like, is it blue or is it purple? It's both. It's both. They're both coexistent at the same time. One, one way you look at it, it's like, oh, wait, it's purple. Oh, wait, one, one way you look at it, it's blue. And I want to show you the next picture, which is the stitching in this, which is extremely close. As you can see, there is purple and there is blue, and they are both coexistent at the exact same time. And that is the way that many of these things are supposed to work in our faith. In Psalm 85.10, it says, Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. That love and faithfulness, a better translation is in the King James. It says mercy and truth. Is it mercy or is it truth? It's both. They both meet together at the cross. Proverbs 3.3 says, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. I'm going to tell you, though, some of these things bring tension. They bring tension in our lives. But I have to just be honest with you. Comfort is an enemy of faith. I'm going to tell you right now, if you're really comfortable in your faith, I'm not sure I'd call it faith. But I want to share, (laughs) I wanted to share three things. But I've narrowed it down to two things as of last service. And I want to show you how in Scripture that we can look at some of these things. And that's why we're going to jump around a little bit. But what I would encourage you to do is write these Scripture verses down. Go home and read it. Not because Pastor Chris said it, but because God said it. Read it within context. 
So I don't want you to think like I just take like things out to prove my point. No, this is all within context. And so write these verses down if they come up too fast for you. One of those ways on Labor Day weekend is work and rest. Work and rest. Out of the Ten Commandments, I would guess in America, the commandment broken the most is keep the Sabbath day holy. Sabbath, or Shabbat, literally means stop. It literally means to stop. It's, and now, I'm not being legalistic here, but we have to see the principle behind this. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. It goes on to say, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, so what should we do? The Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. That's one of the longest explanations of a commandment that we have in Scripture. The other ones are like, don't have any other gods before me. You know, it's like there's, this is a long explanation. Sabbath is a rhythm and a resistance. It's a resistance against the culture of accomplishment. You see, it's a trusting that God has done what he says he's going to do, and he will continue to do, that not, the earth does not revolve around Pastor Chris Merrill. Can we get an amen to that, right? Thank God. But we all have those situations, and I'll tell you, uh, I'll get to that, but we're talking to a generation here. This is called the second law, Deuteronomy. It literally means second law because they were being given this a second time. The reason is because it's a whole new generation that has rose up. And so he's talking to a generation that didn't had knew nothing about slavery, but he's literally talking uh, to a new generation now. Their parents, they knew what they was talking about. They knew, hey, we were working a lot in Egypt, and that's what was happening. In Exodus chapter 1, we see what was happening to them in Egypt. In verse 11, it says, So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities. Look at that. Store cities for Pharaoh. Literally, their job was to build up store cities. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And then when Moses says, let my people go, what does Pharaoh say? Work, (laughs) right? He's like, you're lazy. Get back to work. You just want an excuse not to work. Get back to work, right? Can I tell you that we live in a modern-day Egypt? Now, what do I mean by that? I looked up for your information that America has 1.9 billion square feet of storage facility space. 1.9 billion. There's about 330 million people in America. We could house all of America in our storage space. Think about that for a second. I'm not counting houses. I'm not counting barns. I'm talking about all the stuff we've collected. That we can house all of America. On the dollar bill, if you turn it around and look at it, one of the emblems in there is a pyramid. The founding fathers, had, they had decided to put that on there, and the pyramid's unfinished because the work's not done. 
And in Latin it says, and it has a divine eye over top, and in Latin it basically says God has favored our work. And we're literally living in a, like accomplishment. Keep working, keep striving, get more, right? I don't know if any of you are old enough, I'm not going to judge, to remember the blue laws. Does anybody remember blue laws? I see some shaking hands. Yeah, put some hands up if you're aging yourself, but that's okay. The blue laws. Don't work on Sunday. Nothing opens on Sunday. Isn't it interesting when the blue laws started going out the window, anxiety and depression shot through the roof? Isn't it interesting that now, even now, like you're not off work. It's in your pocket. Your phone, at any moment, people can get in touch with you and you never turn off. It's funny though, but people got to COVID and, and literally like things just screeched to a halt. And uh, I was started reading a book right when COVID started calling The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And then all of a sudden everything stopped. I'm like, God, you're so funny, aren't you? But, but then everything just kept going though. Everything, like in my life, it just exploded because my phone's in my pocket. People can get a hold of me at any time and everybody else is off work, but I'm not because I'm listening to what everybody else, right? And so it's this crazy thing. And I'll be honest, I really had to fight fight to have my space separate and to have boundaries. I remember one day I went out on a walk in the middle. I told Pastor Aaron, I said, I'm turning off my phone. I'm going out in the middle of the woods. Nobody can get a hold of me. I'm just going to walk, right? My wife's like, you're kind of worrying me. <laughs> so uh, she made me bring my phone with me. But I kept it off, right? When I turned it back on at the end of the day, one person said that somebody was trying to commit suicide. Another lady was in a nursing home and her, her health went downhill. It's like I just missed like the whole world, but the world doesn't revolve around Pastor Chris. It's not your time off that makes the difference. It's how you spend your time on. We work and work and work and hope when we get to that vacation, ho-ho, Labor Day's coming, we get a day off. Thank goodness, what do we do on Labor Day? Party, party, do all this stuff, and you know, and I gotta mow the lawn, and I gotta do all these different things, and you're worried, right, about everything you gotta fit in. I see people looking at each other laughing, because that's what I do. You, you push it all off, like I got all my work stuff, I'll, I'll take care of that then. But how many of you, let's be honest, you, you've gone on vacation, and you're at the beach, and you're sitting there, and your brain's just like fried, and you're like, well, I don't know what's happening. I went to Disney World one time, it's like hell on earth, right? Like, I, I did not... It was scary, right? I, I didn't come back feeling refreshed. I can promise you that. But that's what we do on our vacations, right? Like work, 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 go, go, go. And, and really to, to do something like this, and I, I'm just being honest, I have experience with this. It's like withdrawal from a drug. It is. When you step away from everything and, and peel yourself away from the, the, the culture of productivity and accomplishment and trust in the Lord, Exodus 34, 21, it says, six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during your plowing season and harvest, you must rest. I underline that part in my Bible. Even during your plowing season and harvest, you must rest. Well, I'm too busy. Even <laughs> during plowing season and harvest, you must rest. But pastor, because you don't understand how much I on my plate. Even when you're busy, you must fight for this. You must fight for it. You know, Jesus, I look at him and he was so focused. Peter, it's always Peter, isn't it? He always runs up and he, he talks to them and he, he says, Jesus, everybody's been looking for you. What have you been doing? And Jesus is like, chill. 
Pastor Chris quote. <laughs> Chill, that's not in the Bible. But he did turn and he goes, we're going to the next town. Luke 5, it says that, yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Do you realize no one will ever ask you to accomplish your priorities? They'll only ask you to accomplish theirs. Again, I can't figure out all the theology behind this, but there's a situation where Jesus heals a man at the side of this pool, this pool of healing, supposedly. So just picture this. There's hundreds of people probably piled around this pool. Whoever can get into it, whenever it does its thing, they get healed. And, and so they're watching this circumstance happen. Think about what Jesus was doing. Hey, do you want to get healed? Yeah. Pick up your mat and walk. And he steps over all these other people. What, what, what? Jesus, what are you doing? If it was me, like, healed, 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 right? It just, that's, that's what Jesus should be doing, right? No, Jesus had a priority. And you know what he said at the end? He completed his mission. He did his father's business. What are people asking you to accomplish? What are people telling you you have to do? You know, but I have to admit, since 2020, rest has gotten a lot of focus. As the pendulum has swung, and, and you see this, the great resignation, they call it. And, you know, during, during COVID, I found out that um, you can look on the U.S. Chamber of Commerce website that 68% of people who were receiving unemployment benefits were making more on unemployment than they were when they were working. The savings accounts of Americans grew by over $4 trillion during COVID. But we rarely think about the whole commandment. When you see it, you know, brought, brought small, it says, observe the Sabbath. Every single time you see that, it says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. I am not saying swing the pendulum. I'm saying they both should be side to side. Labor Day is a celebration of the social and economic achievements of American workers. That's why we have a day off tomorrow. Some of us do, right? That's why we do that, is we're celebrating the work that, that God has done through the workers of our nation. Because here's the thing, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul, the apostle, talked to them about this. Listen, everybody thought, oh, Jesus is coming back. I'm gonna go pray on the rock like this and meditate to God until Jesus returns. That's not what was happening, but you'll see. 2 Thessalonians 3, it says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is pretty strong. We command you. Woo. We command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who's idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden on any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even we, when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Now, I want to point out something, though. It says unwilling, not unable, okay? It says unwilling to work. 
We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not, oh, this is like my favorite scripture verse. They are not busy, they're busy bodies. You know, busy bodies, don't look at them. They're nosy, they get in everybody else's business. They'll tell you what you should be doing with your life, right? And it's like, wait, what? What are you talking about? Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down. Earn the food that they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. How do we never tire of doing what is good? By working and resting. My dad just retired from um, Sherwin-Williams after like 45 years of working there. And it's awesome. I mean, they got a house down in Myrtle Beach. We got a chance to go down there. And so they, he's been retired for like a little over two months. And it's funny because we asked my stepmom and my dad, like, this must be awesome. You know, come down to the beach and sit around and hang out. And without even hesitation, my stepmom goes, it's boring. <laughs> I remember they took us at our honeymoon to this side of this private island. It was a private beach, just the two of us. And we thought this was awesome. And we thought, we thought uh, man, it, we're going to love this. We'll be here all day. We're not even going to tell you to pick us up. You know, it's going to be amazing. Four hours later, we felt like Survivor. <laughs> it's like, please, come pick us up. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to see, you know. I went 10 days to Mexico, and me and my wife, had, after 10 days, we're like, I'm ready to come back. Like, I'm ready to get something done. Don't lose your purpose. I'm not going to argue with you what, what the Bible says about retirement, but I am going to say when you lose your purpose, man, you, lo- you lose direction and guidance. You can rest, 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 but, but do something. If you're in a nursing home, do something. Go pray for somebody. The seasoned saints are the ones who are lifting the burden of prayer oftentimes for the church. And when I see some people, even on their deathbed, uh, Joan Parsons, who we were talking about, man, that woman prays. That woman was carrying things. That woman, there was a a roommate right next to her. Remember this, Nancy? A roommate right next to her that needed help. And she was helping the person next to her in the nursing home. Find purpose. And we think that, uh, like, once we get to retirement, whoo, yeah, it's forever and always. It's going to be amazing. No, if if you lack direction and purpose, that's not what it was. When people ask me about the youth, they're like, how how do you deal with youth kids? I said, by the grace of God. No, I'm just kidding. No, whenever they they tell me, like, how do you do this? I play hard and I pray hard. What else? I play hard and I pray hard. That's what I do, right? My son was asking me the other day. He's like, what's this scar on your shin? It's from the mud pit at youth camp. Yeah, that's that's what that's from. I play hard and I pray hard. Yes, I'm out there in the mud pit, but yes, I am right at the front of the altar, loving on them. And I don't have time for part two, but part three. I want to talk to you as we close about grace and truth. Grace and truth. Jesus, it says in John 1.14, came full of grace and truth. In our society, truth has gotten a lot of attention in recent years for good reason. Truth is under assault right now. Truth is under assault. Is there objective truth? Well, God pretty clearly says yes. There is objective truth. There are some things that are absolutes and they're clear, right? You can't decide to change gravity today. You're going to fall, and I'm probably going to fall faster. But can you tell how I get misdirected in youth messages? 
But let's not leave out grace because it's not a spectrum. And I know a lot of Christians who have decided I'm going to be on this side or I'm going to be on this side. I'm all about that truth. I'm all about that grace. I'm all about that base. So, but that's what we do is we get on this spectrum, right? And we decide, I'm a truth person. Oh, I tell it like it is. I'm very discerning. No, that's called a critical spirit, man. Like, no, we have to be full of grace and truth. You need both. And you can have both. And don't live the lie. Like, it, like it's like the shady maple, right? That you're deciding, oh, I'll take a little grace today and then a little truth. Please, Christians, let's not be bipolar Christians, just look, look for a second on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. It's like one day, it's like Jesus came to save your life. He died for you. The blood that was shed on the cross, screw you, right? Over here, it's like, whoa, whoa, like, holy smokes. Wait, I thought, you know, and, and this is what we're doing is like, I'm not telling you to swing back and forth from one to the other. You should have both. There's so much I want to share, but so much time it would take. But Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, which is talking about the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It, grace. Wait, doesn't he mean... I read this. I thought about this. Doesn't he mean truth? Isn't it truth that teaches us to say no? You need the rules, and you need to know you got to say no. Mm, No, he didn't mince words here. He said grace. Grace also teaches us to say no to things that are ungodly. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Well, it's his truth. Yes, it is his truth. But it's his kindness, it says in Scripture, that leads us to repentance. It's his love that was demonstrated on the cross for you that ultimately brings your salvation. That's the truth. That's the truth. One of the things that we need to learn, especially in the social media culture, is speaking the truth in love. And and I want to share just a bigger portion of Scripture here towards the end, um, just because it needs to be in context. This is one of those scripture verses that a lot of people know, but a lot of people don't know the context of the scripture. And so in Ephesians 4.14, it says, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will, this is important, grow to become in every respect The mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Speaking the truth in love is a picture of spiritual maturity. This is talking about spiritual growth. If if you're struggling to share the truth in love, we need to grow. We need to grow up. So how's your maturing going? How's it going? Pretty good? I, um, I was thinking about this. I have this baseball here, and this, this baseball is hard. <laughs> this baseball is hard, right? It's not a softball. It's a baseball. And so if I just took this baseball, all of a sudden just chucked it at Matt, right? 
bam, hit him in the side of the head. Like, ha, gotcha with the cold hard truth, Matt, right? The truth will set you free. Like, no, you just gave me a headache, brother. No, this would hurt if I delivered it that way. Now, I'm going to show you something real quick. So, Matt, can you catch this? You ready? You can put both hands out. All right, you ready? Can you tell me what's inside of that? A baseball. Yeah, thank you. You can go ahead and toss it back. Thank you so much. There's still a baseball. The baseball is still the cold, hard truth. But my delivery method changed. I'm not telling you to sugarcoat truth. I'm telling you your delivery method matters. How and when you say it matters. James 1.26 says, Those who consider themselves religious and yet don't keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. And their religion is worthless. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Put that up. Go ahead. I want to show you this picture. Isn't that done? Yeah. When you're about to get petty, but the Holy Spirit got your back. <laughs> How many of us need that, right? In their quest to be doctrinally sound, some have become emotionally cold. We can all think of uncaring, unkind leaders that get strong results for a while, but if there's not empathy, they won't lead well over the long term. One of my best friends is 80-year-old Fred Quaid. Fred and I go to breakfast at least once a month, and Fred and I have become very quick friends. Ron, you've met Fred, right? We met Fred before we realized that he um, volunteers at the Cancer Center uh, to help people. He's a retired minister from a totally different denomination, worked for their um, headquarters of their denomination. And so I just love getting together with Fred and his wife, Marcia. And they said that they have one goal every single day, make at least one person smile. Make at least one person smile. He remembers having a board member one time who was uh, always arguing against him on everything. He said this board member at the one church, he said the church burned down, uh, and then they ended up having to like rebuild another church, went through all kinds of transitions and stuff. There was this one board member that was with him all the time, and he was always the naysayer. He was always the one to say, like, you shouldn't do this, and disagree with everything that Fred said. They had a celebration when Fred was leaving to go to the, to the, the main office, and this, this board member comes up and gives Fred a hug. And, and Fred said he just stood there like this, like, what is happening right now, you know? And he stepped back, and I'm just going to say, the guy's name wasn't Mark, but let's say his name was Mark. He said, Mark, because uh, the, the guy said to him, as he hugged him, Fred, we're really going to miss you. And he kind of like pushed him back. He's like, Mark, you argued against everything we ever did. <laughs> and Mark said this statement to him. Yeah, but I never doubted that you love me. I never doubted that you love me. When he said that at the breakfast table, I was like, I'm writing that, like, man, would that be said of us? Oh, absolutely. Maybe we'll disagree. But if they could say, but I never, I never doubted that you loved me. Honestly, in my frustration and anger, it makes me want to turn truth into a weapon. It does. Patrick, I'll have you come up here. I'm just saying it's not about being well-rounded. It's actually about being more extreme. 
Balanced people don't change the world. Passionate people do. Carrie Newhoff once wrote that. Today, the mood of many Christians is shaped more by the media than the heart of God. And so whenever they look at our lives, they see a lot of blue or a lot of purple. And whenever you look at my life, you know, are you saying like, wow, he's really a truth guy, isn't he? He really knows how to tell the truth. Or man, do you see the grace that he just gave in that circumstance? You know, when our lives share that, we don't get to choose, church. We don't get to choose. And I know it's challenging, but some of us, we need a fresh revelation of the missing element in our walk. Because let me just be honest with you, my week, I had one of those moments with my wife, and she'll tell you flat out, Chris screwed that one up. I wish I had a mirror. You know, you wish you had a mirror to just see yourself. The second it came out of my mouth, I'm like, Ew! like, you know, I said a, a statement that was true. And she would agree with me, it's true. But it was the wrong way, wrong attitude, inappropriate. It was just wrong the way that I said it. But what, what did I say afterwards? Ha! But that's the truth! No, I repented. I said, I'm so sorry. That's not what she needed in that moment. She knew the truth. But she needed me walking in empathy and grace at the same time. And I messed up. And so sometimes we need to repent. Say, I've, I've messed this up. I've, I've got a critical spirit. I've just been like bashing on people or, or maybe you, you've been too grace-filled. Listen, it's important to be direct with people. We need a clear articulation of what the gospel says and what Jesus has done for us and the truth of the scriptures. We need that in our society. We need to be very clear. Let's not sugarcoat it but we can deliver it in grace. We need it all. And work and rest, I can see it on some of your faces. You barely got here this Sunday, right? But that's why they started their week with the Sabbath. That was the beginning of their week. It came in rested and ready for the work and to be productive members of society I don't have this written down, but I know this for a fact, that some of the early apologists of, that we know of in the first and second centuries, um, their argument, when we think of apologists, we think about people arguing about the truth of scripture, right? Their main argument was, look how productive we are as members of the society. You're so angry with us and you wanna like uh, crucify us, but we are literally changing the world. But I think back to the moment when I got saved, or at least when somebody shared the gospel with me, my father-in-law, Earl, and I've talked about that story before. I'll tell you someday. I was on the edge of a cliff and I thought he was gonna shove me off. <laughs> he might still debate it. <laughs> um, but I remember thinking back and, and I was trying to think like, what stuck out to me about that situation? What was it about Earl that stuck out to me? Was it that he shared the truth with me? Was it, was it that, man, he just had so much grace for me, right? right? It wasn't that he kept all the rules according to Scripture. It wasn't that he was more moral than me. 
or that he could recite the scriptures or that he had all the answers. But I still remember the feeling of realizing I just met a man who knew God. When Moses was in the desert in the wilderness, there was a moment where God was just gonna say, just, I showed you where the promised land is, just go to the promised land, I already gave you the rules, just go. Moses in that moment can be like, good, we got the truth, that's all we need. Truth set you free, you know, he, he's going, or, or he's, he's, uh, he could have been like, God, please, like, you, you need to give them grace again, you need to back, back out of your, your intense rules, just give them grace, right? No, what did he say? He said, we don't want to go anywhere where your presence doesn't go with us. So what I'm not telling you today is try to be more of a truth person, try to be more of a, a grace person, try to, try to do more when it comes to work and rest. And certainly there's some dis disciplines that we can put in place to help with these things. But let me promise you, some of those things is like coming off of a drug. I've been there. It's painful. It peels at your heart. But those are the moments where it's about getting into the presence of God. I'm gonna ask the singers to come up here for just a second because it's the presence of God that sets us apart. He said, it's not, it's not gonna be like us going into the wilderness, like all these nations are gonna see us, Moses said, and what's gonna set us apart? That we got all different rules? What's gonna set us apart? It's the presence of God. It's like the, your, your presence is with us. Are, is that that obvious in your life? that the presence of God is on your life? That when you walk into a situation, they look at your life and they go, wait a minute, was that grace? Was that truth? You're like, it was both, <laughs> right? You're walking in and you're, you're describing like their situation and you're loving on them and you're giving them the, the hard truth, but you're helping them to unpack it and recognize the, the grace and the power of God. Because here's the truth, God died for your sins. God absolutely got brutally murdered on a cross for your sins. That is the truth. And the grace of it is God died for your sins. God died for your sins that his blood was shed on the cross for your healing and for your wholeness. And so maybe you, you come away from a message like this. It's like, I got a lot of work to do, Pastor Chris said. No, what I'm saying is you need just to love the revelation of that aspect of God's character. You need a fresh revelation of God's grace upon your life. Like me looking back and go like, wow, you know how messed up I was when Earl saw me? I was messed up. Thank God for the grace of God. But I also look back in that moment, I was messed up, just lost my mom, she died, and I'm taking care of all these things. But the truth is, I needed a savior. And maybe you're on the precipice of that cliff as well trusting him, standing firm in your, in your convictions, but just knowing like, man, he said, he did this for me. He loves me like this. So I'm going to ask you to stand here and um, we're going to close with this, with just singing this chorus to this song. I'm not enough because here's the truth, church. I'm not enough. You're not enough. The truth is, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And the grace is that he demonstrated his love for you in this, that he died for you. He absolutely loves you. And he has been reaching out for you. So let's just sing this together and, and just...
take a moment to just recognize his presence in the room. Recognize his presence, whatever room you're watching from online and know he's with you because that, that is how we get deeper, fresh revelation of his fullness.